Friends, we're in Leviticus. <laughs> I love it. Leviticus. Let's uh, pray as we begin our message. God, thank you for your word. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And as we open up your word, may you inspire us once again, bring us insight and wisdom, transform us over and over and over again through the power of your word. And we pray in your name. Amen. Leviticus, we read verses 1 through 8 last week. Let's read verses 10 and following. And then I'm going to skip around in chapters 2 and chapters 3. So if you have your Bibles, there's a couple places that I'd love for you to highlight. For example, this word burnt is already bolded and colored a little bit different because that's going to be a key word in tonight's message. And if that's something that is of interest to you, uh, you are encouraged to take notes. Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 10. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, either from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons and the priests shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with the water. And the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely. And then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord... Their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. Now skip ahead to chapter 3, verse 1. If your offering is a fellowship offering, and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you are to present it before the Lord, an animal without defect. Now skip over all the stuff that is repeated a little bit, whether you bring a goat or, or a dove, and skip down to... Verse 16, all the fat is the Lord's. And everybody said, amen. <laughs> this is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat any of the fat or any blood. I'd like to share with you a message entitled, All the Fat is the Lord's. Last week we talked about sacrifice. And the word for sacrifice, korban, is the same word that means close or to draw near. And so when we make a sacrifice, when we talk about a sacrifice, and when Leviticus is talking about when you bring your sacrifices, it's actually when you are wishing to draw near to the Lord. And so while we get mixed up a little bit in all the blood and the guts and the animals and cutting and the specifications around all that, fundamentally at the base of this is drawing near to God. And we recognize that in order to draw near, a sacrifice is necessary. This beautiful, mystical relationship between sacrifice and closeness. Uh, Jacob Milgram in his commentary, Continental Commentary on Leviticus, says, Behind the sacrificial system is a profound design for creating a sense of spiritual connection. 
And this is exactly what these sacrifices do, why there's priests there, why they have the system there. It is essentially designed to create this spiritual connection, some sort of closeness. Distance is no longer going to be the standard mode of operation. God has instituted a system through the language of the people, through the way in which the people think, for how to draw near and to come close. Jacob Milgram continues on and talks about this idea that all of these things, when you read the language uh, appropriately, it is as if God is inviting you. There's an invitation that has actually been sent out to each and every one of you. When you bring this, this is what you are to do. And when you do these things, we are now invited into this presence, into a party, into some sort of beautiful, covenantal, intimate relationship. These sacrifices, all of these directions are essentially an invitation. There's all sorts of beautiful things, uh, some uh, notes that we could possibly mention. For example, there's economies, uh, there's the economics of sacrifice that exists. Notice there's a bull, notice there's a goat, notice that there's flour, and notice there's also doves and pigeons. And each one of those represent different levels of economic status. People who happen to have a lot of money or a lot of wealth, all the way down to those who have none. And so even at this particular point, when you start to read, okay, you have the bull, you have the cow there, and then all the delineation of the rules there, and then you have the goat, and it's like the repetition of those, and then you have the bird and the repetition of those. The reason why that exists is because one of the beautiful things that exists here is that there does not exist a separation of whether or not you are of one economic status or another economic status. All of us, the entire community, whoever we are, wherever we might be on that economic scale, are invited to draw near. And this is going to play an especially important role, especially later on in the scriptures, where the people who are the aristocracy, the people who are rich, the people who are powerful are actually the ones to draw near, and the people who can't afford it and the people who are poor, well, unfortunately, they're left off to the side. This is, comes into play when Jesus, if you remember the story in the Gospels, where he goes into the temple and he tears through with a whip and says, how dare you turn my father's house into a den of thieves? Commentators suggest that what is happening there is that most likely the economics of the sacrificial system are taking advantage of those who are left on the outside or left to the Gentiles, the people. There are certain people who are not allowed and invited in. And all the way back here in Leviticus, because we have this tiered system of economics, everybody, everybody is invited. So Leviticus is an invitation. The sacrifices are an invitation for all of us, for you, for me, to come near, to draw close to God. If we feel separate and segregated from God, we are invited to draw near. And this particular opening passage has three very specific offerings that are listed. The first is the Ola offering. Everybody say Ola. The second is the Mincha. Everybody say Mincha. And the, the third is the Shlamim. Everybody say Shlamim. Now, most uh, commentators will tell you that these particular sacrifices that are listed there specifically are actually ways of saying, I'm sorry. They're ways of recognizing that there's some sort of guilt, that I have done something to wrong either God or the community, and so I am coming forth to make amends and to say that I am sorry. And of course, with the beautiful relationship between apology and love, it is also another way of saying, I love you. Has um, anybody ever 
done something wrong, and one of the first things that you do in that relationship is you go out and you buy a bottle of wine or some chocolates or some flowers, and you are offering this essentially as your sacrifice to say, I am sorry, and I love you. So these three particular sacrifices, the Yolah, the Mincha, and the Shlamim, which make up the first three of the first five that are going to be listed in Leviticus, are a way of saying, I'm sorry. A way of recognizing that there is guilt that is happening within our community, within my life, within us. And this is the focus that I'd like to take for tonight. Guilt. Sin. Something has been done wrong. And there is a way for us, in the midst of having done something wrong, or committed a sin, to say I'm sorry, and to make things right, and to offer up something to once again draw us close together. Now, a variety of comments, uh, a variety of interpretations could be had regarding these three words. The word ola sounds like the word that goes up. It is the word that is translated burnt offering, and of course when you burn something, where does the smoke go? The smoke goes up. And so the Olah offering is this up offering. So some people suggest that the Olah offering is a way of reconciling your wrong that you have done with God. And by offering the burnt offering, offering it up to God is a way of saying, I'm sorry to God. The second is rest. The word for rest, mincha, sounds like the word rest. Now it means grain, um, but it sounds like comes from that word to rest. And so there's something not necessarily right here within the heart or within the spirit of myself. So maybe some sort of wrong has been done here. And the last offering, shlamim, sounds like the word for peace, shalom, which some commentators suggest that maybe the wrong that has been done was between me and somebody else. And so there's one particular interpretation, up with God, here with me, and shlamim with all of us around here. Some suggest that Allah means something that I have thought. Maybe there was a sin that I have committed that I thought about in my mind that was wrong, and I need to make amends for what it is that was in my mind. And the mincha, because it's a grain offering, some suggest there's a material thing that has been broken. Like you kicked your neighbor's donkey or your neighbor's cat or you broke something or whatever it is. That there's a physical thing that has been broken. And the shlamim because it's peace and wellness and wholeness, some commentators suggest it might be a broken heart. There's all sorts of beautiful potential resonances with these words that are used. Even though in our English it'll say burnt offering, grain offering, and depending upon which translation you have, well-being offering. Is it up? Is it something that I've thought? Is it something that I've done? Is it something that I've broken? And these are Things that I would encourage you to consider. That sin or brokenness or having done something wrong or guilt actually extends to all of these, don't they? Things that I've thought, things that I've said, things that I've broken, my relationship with God, my relationship with other people. And one of the things that I love, once again, about this book is that it is covering all of the bases. It is recognizing all of life. Again, all based around this idea that something has been done wrong. There is a guilt here. Tonight, I want to take one step further from some of those interpretations of what those words might mean to this particular question. What was the religious and sacrificial setting 
of Leviticus. And if we got around the setting of the sacrificial system back then, maybe that might illuminate something for us for today. We're used to reading, for those of you who study the Bible, for those of you who have been maybe grown up in church and had conversations around this, many of us are used to reading what is known as vertically. Like you read from Genesis, then you read to Exodus, Leviticus, and you string it through. And some scholars call that vertical reading, the idea of taking a look at what the Bible means in light of other texts that come before and come after it. This is what some scholars suggest as horizontal reading. Sacrificial system set, I don't know, 10th, 11th, 12th, 9th century BC, here in Israel. What was going on around Israel at that time that would make this specific sacrificial system unique, special, or different? So let's travel back. I want to take your minds back, if you can, and take a little journey and perhaps do a little bit of an anthropological study. Pretend this is your thesis at Stanford. The ancient people, through anthropological study and those who do archaeology, have understood that religions have popped up all throughout history. Religions have come up through an understanding that there are particular things in this world that are required in order for my life to be sustained. The sun that moves throughout the sky and the moon that moves and the stars and they wouldn't understand necessarily all of the astronomy behind all of this, but they understood that without those things, life here on earth would not exist. Things like rain and soil and the seas, all of the forces of nature, all of that is necessary. And if it rains, then we have crops and our animals flourish and we have life, we have drink. But if it doesn't rain, then there's death dry soil. Things go horribly, horribly wrong. And if all of this is well, then not only do we have fertility, our flocks have fertility, our crops have fertility, and life can flourish. So ancient people throughout history, even up to today, have noticed that all of those things happen, that those things are necessary for life. The sun is necessary for life, air is necessary for life, water is necessary for life, The question emerges, what happens when some of those things don't work out the way that they're supposed to? What happens if your animals actually don't produce offspring? Well, then you don't have meat or milk for the next season or for the next generation. What happens if there's no water? What happens when all of that dries up? Well, then my life is somehow suspect. Uh, My life is somehow in danger. And what happens if The sun doesn't shine, whether it's due to storms, because of clouds, etc. And the ancient people started to develop a sense of fear and a sense of trepidation regarding all of these forces. Now, all of this religious anthropological history is fairly involved and fairly complicated. In summary, people began to personify each and every one of these particular forces and give them names and to begin instituting relationships with all of these gods and all of these goddesses. And if you studied this at any length, you know that the list just goes on and on and on with the list of gods and goddesses that exist in this world. Here's just a couple of them that were from the Canaanite and what is known as the Sumerian Babylonian era, all of that around Israel. You have the god Baal, which is the storm and the thunder god. You have the god 
Dagon, which is the grain and fish god. This is, these two gods, by the way, are mentioned in your scriptures. Molech is also mentioned in the Bible, which is known as the king god. Ketesh is the god of pleasure and sexuality, or the heavens and the stars. Marduk is the god of fresh water, vegetation, and magic. Ishtar is the god of fertility, of war, and of sex. Nabu is the god of wisdom and understanding. Kibbalah is the god, the mother goddess of hunting and of small animals, which is really an interesting juxtaposition, who eventually becomes Artemis and Diana, the goddess of small animals and the god of hunting. Figure that one out. Kibbalah is also known as the mountain mama. I just like saying the mountain mama. It's just fun to say. One of the most fundamental gods of the ancient Canaanite religion is the god El. You see him here between two lions. The father that exists up there, up above. And every single one of these gods has a name. Every single one of these gods has a particular thing that they provide for us. So much so that kings and other rulers of various societies and civilizations throughout the ancient Near East and even throughout today are depicted as giving homage or paying homage or paying respect to these gods. See, the earthly kings or the earthly rulers are not necessarily the ones with the ultimate power. It's the gods and the goddesses that live up there that have the ultimate power. And if we don't pay attention to them, and if we don't ensure that they are happy, if we don't ensure that they have everything that they need, then our lives are in jeopardy. If Molech, the storm god, is unhappy, then the storm is not going to come and the water is not going to water our lands. What do you do? What it, the question is, how do you live in a world in which all of these gods and goddesses need to be appeased, need to be happy, need to have a good relationship. You need to be on a good standing with all these gods and goddesses in order for your life to be sustained. And you know that if that is compromised, something is going to happen to your life. Most would understand that it is through that sense of relationship, through an appeasement of the gods, that a system of sacrifice began to emerge. In other words, what I'm taking, if there's something that I have in this world, whether that be grain, whether that be animals, whatever that is, I need to offer it up to the gods to make sure that they are happy, to make sure that they are satiated. And if they are satiated, if they are satisfied with what it is that I have given them, then they will in kind reciprocate that which I need to live and to be sustained. Most of the sacrifices, animals, or grain would be considered food for the gods. The food for the gods was a way of saying, I am giving this to you, the animals, the grains, all of this. I am making sure that you are satisfied, O oh God, Marduk, O oh God, El, whatever God that you are, making sure that you're paying attention to. And as you are satiated, as you are satisfied, then my life will then flourish. My life will have fertility. My life will have peace. Just a quick side note, this is one of those things where I often wonder, um, because the Leviticus story comes in and does something very different from that kind of an appeasement. This phrase in Leviticus chapter 1, starting in verse 12 and 13, you can actually, if you would like, cross out the word food offering, because it's not a food offering. It's actually the word by fire. 
It also shows up again in verse 17 where it says a food offering, and that word is not actually the word food. It's actually the word by fire. So somewhere at the very beginning of this Leviticus story and passage, these are not food offerings to appease the God. There's something else that's going on in this passage. In addition to appeasement of the gods and making sure that they are happy and making sure that they are satisfied, satiated, the ancients, as well as us today, understood that blood was the sense of life. Life was in our blood, and the loss of blood meant the loss of life. Once again, connected to the idea of sacrifice. So if the grain offering wasn't enough, if, if that wasn't enough to appease the gods, then we're going to have to jump to something even bigger, more precious, more life full. So that's going to be the animals, the goats, the pigeons, the bulls. And we're even going to make sure that we make a display of all of this blood. And if that wasn't enough of a sacrifice, then not only is it going to be the animal's blood, well, then I better shed some of my own blood. And so you see throughout history and through some anthropological studies, you see a progression of sacrifice that gets even more and more progressive, so much so that the appeasement and the satiation of the gods goes to even self-harm and affliction. Now, none of you should be surprised by this, especially if you've studied anything uh, throughout the ancient Hebrew Bible, because we have examples of this. First Kings chapter 8, for those of you who know the story of uh, Elijah on the mountain of Carmel having this great epic battle, and he says this beautiful quote. He says, where is your God? Is he sleeping? Is he busy? Is he taking a dump? What is he doing? Why isn't he showing up? And the prophets of Baal, the prophets of this God, are expressing themselves more and more to try to get some sort of reaction and response. So they shouted louder and louder. And here's the key phrase. Slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom. So even in our own text, we have evidence of ancient religious rituals and practices that pushed the boundary of sacrifice more and more and more, so much so that we are even having to sacrifice our own blood in order to satiate these gods and these goddesses. Unfortunately, many of you know this, this kind of sacrifice led to some of the most horrific practices, and I'm really sorry to say this, practices that even still exist today, the sacrifice of your own children. And we have passages like this in Jeremiah. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. So beware the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call this place Topheth or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. So much so that the Israelites themselves were caught up in this particular system. The grain isn't enough. The bull isn't enough. My own blood isn't enough. Now I must even sacrifice my own son. This, by the way, is where we get the word Gehenna. The valley of Ben-Hinnom in Hebrew is Ge-Hinnom, which is where we get the word Gehenna, which is a modern way of saying hell. I'm so disturbed by this. Are you disturbed that ancient people would go through such lengths to appease whatever God's deities may exist, whatever the forces of this world are, in order to make sure that we have life? But I have a very uh, harsh question. 
are we any different? Are we any different from them? I mean, honestly, think about how we behave and how we act. How many of you know of your own behavior or somebody you know that works so much, so tirelessly, so dedicated to success or that next zero, that next decimal point on their paycheck, whatever it is, so much so that they're working for that because they know by achieving that, that will bring them the life that they want and desire only to sacrifice their own family at home. Are we any different from them? The ancient Baal prophets and worshipers would slash themselves and actually draw blood from themselves. And for those of you in this room, some of you have, and you know kids who have under such pressure, stress, anxiety, uh, mental illness, other kinds of things, and even all the way into adulthood, where ev we even have that same practice today. And many of you have had to counsel um, people regarding their own cutting of themselves. And by doing that behavior, by doing that action, somehow finding some sort of life even out of that. Do we have people in this world that sacrifice their own time, their money, and their own body by either going under the knife, doing plastic surgery, or alterations? It, all of this just so that they can find acceptance or love or presence or community, that people will find some sort of value for them in this world. And how many of you bought a Powerball ticket? How many of you sacrificed those $2 to the gods of statistics and of mathematics only to believe that only if that $1.6 billion could be mine, then I could find the life if only, if only, if only. Maybe we should consider these ancient practices and even ancient books like Leviticus in this particular light. Same gods, different names. And we do the same sacrifices, just with different flesh. All of us in this world, to this day, participate in activities that hope to satiate some sort of power, some sort of life force, in order for us to find the life that we are looking for, that we're hoping for, that we believe will come as a result of sacrificing to those gods. Now, into the mix of all of this comes Leviticus with these three specific sacrifices, the Ola, the Mincha, and the Shlamim. And if you remember, I mentioned that these particular sacrifices are all about guilt. Something that you have done something that has transgressed yourself, your life, your relationship with God, or with the community. And immediately right there, we should recognize that there's something different about this kind of sacrifice than the reaching and striving and guessing as to whatever is going to make these gods and goddesses happy. This arbitrary, just throwing something, some sort of spaghetti against the wall, seeing what sticks with those deities... These sacrifices, specifically in Leviticus, are about guilt, a way of saying, I'm sorry. Now, at this particular juncture, I want to make sure that we recognize that this is not the same as shame. This is about guilt, something that you've done, not something who you are. Those are two very different kinds of ideas, and it's really important to keep those two separate. And it's really important specifically for this particular message. These sacrifices are about guilt, something that you've done. Three takeaways that I would love for you to hang on to 
as a result of recognizing these sacrifices as something that we, as a result of something that we've done in order to atone for or be sorry for that, the things that we've done. The first is the power of responsibility. The power of responsibility. The previous iterations of sacrifices were all about the arbitrary satiation of these deities. How in the world are we going to make sure that we make them happy? These sacrifices were all about you have a responsibility for how you act and how you behave in this world. And if you recognize that you have a responsibility for how you act and how you behave and what it is that you do, then something really radical and transformative and redemptive can happen for you, for this life, and for our community. Previously in iterations, the source of, the source of impurity was the demonic, was lived in those particular realms. But here in Leviticus, the source of the sin is the guilt of the human soul, the guilt of the human wisdom, or our own dysfunction, or our own failings. Now, immediately, some of you are like, but this isn't very inspiring or very helpful. This is emphasized by the idea that the priest is to set one hand upon the goat, and that's significant. Later on, the priest is going to lay two hands, which is all the sin. One hand is signifying you have done something. There's, there's something that is happening, that has happened, that you have committed, that we are making amends for. But the reason why this is so powerful and the reason why this is so important is because previously no one ever told me what I did wrong. No one ever communicated exactly how far I needed to go. No one ever shared with me, here's what really ticked me off in the previous iterations of deities. Here, there are specific rules and specific guidelines. And under, unfortunately, the word guilt has been used to put pressure on you in a shameful way. But here, there's something really, really powerful about owning responsibility. In the past couple of weeks, I've had some conversations with some of you about a variety of dysfunctions, about a variety of complications, about a variety of chaoses that exist in your world. And how many of you, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of dysfunction and problematic relationships, immediately point to the other person and say, it must be them. How many of you immediately scapegoat and say, well, it clearly is them. And I had so, I've had some conversations recently where I'm sitting the cross, across the table with somebody, and the only thing that this person can say was, they are so fill in the blank. I can't believe how they are acting. The reason why this relationship, the reason why this dysfunction is happening is because I wish they would just grow up. They are being immature. They are being dysfunctional. They are being so horrible and so bad. And we go on and on for hours, and hopefully I'm somewhat decent at just listening and holding the space. And there have been a couple times in these conversations where I'll just ask the hard question. I say, what do you own in this? What is your responsibility in the relationship? And rather than a sense of guilt, rather than a sense of, oh, and now it's my fault that you're saying, it's actually a sense of empowerment. Because if it was only them, if it was somebody else, if it was another party, if it was all their fault, guess what I have to do to bring about any redemption, to bring about any healing? I have no responsibility. 
But as soon as we say, you know what? I own something here. I am a part of this relationship. I can see now through our time together, through our conversation, the thing that I have done to either exacerbate or make worse, or here's where I have been immature. And in multiple conversations, I have watched somebody, and sometimes these conversations are in the mirror, by the way, I have watched multiple people turn and say, oh, if there's a responsibility that I own, then there's actually an empowerment in my life to do something about it. Because previously to that, I'm completely helpless because it's just all them. And this Leviticus passage about you bring something forth for something that you have done, unfortunately can be seen just as how bad of a sinner you are, how horrible of a person you are, the commission is to bring a sacrifice, to make amends, to make it better, to bring healing, to bring restoration, to do this act, to make things better. An identification of guilt does not have to be a condemnation of shame. It can actually be a point of empowerment. So think about your relationships and the dysfunctions and the chaoses that exist at work, at home, and if the first thing that you pull to, or the only thing that you pull to, is that it must be them, you have just completely stripped yourself of any sense of responsibility and of any power to do anything about it. And this sacrifice says you own guilt. And the beautiful thing about this second piece is not only do you own it, but I'm going to give you clearly the steps of how to make it better. I don't know, those of you who have worked at a school, this, I don't, if you've been to the King's Academy, this is page 32 of our handbook. It's the Code of Conduct. There are different categories of offenses. Category 9, inappropriate talking, uh, dress, hair code violations, and here are the number of demerits that you get. And it goes all the way up to cell phone, disobedience, fighting, bullying, alcohol, weapons, etc., etc. And each particular offense that goes up, there's greater demerits. Now, we fight about this all the time, about whether or not it's right, it's just, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But here's the point. It's written down, and it's clear. And here are the steps that you need to know. If you do this, this is the consequence. And if you can do this, here's how we can make amends. So number one, there is a guilt that we should own that empowers us to do something about it. Number two, the delineation of exactly what to do with these sacrifices provides clarity for how you are to go about making amends and making things right. Remember in the previous iterations of the deities of the Mesopotamian ancient Near East, you were just throwing things around. If I do this, is that going to be enough? If that's not enough, then I'll take it to the next step. And the cascading effect of just more and more and more and more to see exactly what's going to make the gods happy, happy is crazy making so much so that you end up sacrificing your own children. There's no sense of what is going to make this better. And here in Leviticus, let me tell you exactly. Here's what you bring. Here's how it's to be, it is to be prepared. Here's how the priest is going to handle it. And here's the deal. Once this is done, once you have accomplished this, 
we're good. Redemption has happened. Forgiveness has happened. And we don't have to worry about, was there another thing? No. This sacrifice right here, right now, done. There is phenomenal freedom in the clarity. For us, again, in the 21st century, reading this list, it's extremely boring, right? I don't want to lead this over and over and over and over exactly how the blood's supposed to be, exactly where the kidneys and the fat and all this. But set back in that time. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. We're good. There's a freedom in the sense of clarity. How many of you have been at work or been a part of a family and it's kind of like you're not quite sure what's going to tick off the boss. You're not exactly sure what the right thing is going to be with mom or dad. You're in a relationship and you're walking on eggshells because this person is so volatile. You're really not quite sure exactly what is going to make them happy or how this relationship... Have we all felt a sense of ambiguity or fuzziness regarding where these relationships are? We've all felt this. And this Leviticus passage comes in and says, this is exactly what it is that we are to do. And in business and in life and relationships, there is phenomenal freedom in sitting down across the table together and clarifying, you know what? Here's what really does it for me. And by the way, if we could do this, we'd be all good. Wouldn't that be a phenomenally freeing and liberating exercise to be that clear? And this is what Leviticus does. Now, the third piece of this puzzle, and we'll end on this, is this beautiful phrase at the very end of this segment in chapter 3, all the fat is the Lord's, to which I say, amen. Now, what is the fat? There's lots of different interpretation. There's lots of different commentary regarding the importance of this, but fundamentally, most commentators will say the reason why the fat is important is because the fat represents the fullness and the richness of life. Fat can be burned for oil. It is also what provides flavor. It's also the thing that is the most rich in the animal. And so when at the very end of chapter 3, it has this beautiful phrase, all the fat is the Lord's. And this is what you are to do. You're to burn all of it. And it's a very, again, very specific instructions as to what you are to do. There are two ways that we could think about this in light of these sacrificial systems. The first is that which lives inside of all of us, that which brings every single one of us the fullness and the richness of life is found here and belongs ultimately to the Lord. Not to all of these gods and deities that are demanding our attention, demanding our sacrifice, demanding that we sacrifice a bit of us so that we can get life. All of this, all of that lives in here, in our hearts, belongs to him. It belongs to the Lord. And the second is, all that lives in here, the richness and the fullness of life that is here, has already been put there by Yahweh himself. And so when they extract it from the animal and they put it on the altar, it's a ritualistic symbol to say that the reason why you're sending it up to God as a symbol is because it was put there by me in the first place. In other words, every single one of you already have the fullness and the richness of life that you could ever ask or imagine sitting right here on top of your kidneys. 
It's already here. It already exists within you. And all of those temptations that we have to sacrifice grain, to sacrifice our own flesh, to sacrifice our own time, even to sacrifice our own children, to get the very life that we think we need, it already exists within you. And what kind of life would it be if we stopped for a moment and recognized that the fullness and the richness, the fat of life already exists within us because of the goodness and the mercy and the grace of God, because we are created in His image, God already has dwelt the fullness and the richness within us here. And then we live into our world, into our relationships, into our work, into our business, out of that fullness. In other words, all the fat is the Lord's. And if you are here listening to this and thinking there's something else that I need to do, some other God I need to appease, some other thing I need to sacrifice in order to get the fullness of life that I'm looking for, maybe this sacrificial system reminds us you already have it. It already exists within you. All the fat is the Lord's. It's already here. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word again and for my friends. And I pray that as some of us go out and eat sacrificial meat now, (laughs) as we head on out to the world and to all the struggles and the challenges that we give in order to gain the life that we think that we so need, may we recognize that all of it already exists within us all the beautiful fat, the richness, and the fullness of life is already here. And help us to embrace that truth and reality and to live into this world out of that truth and reality. I pray that for my friends and for all of us listening. I pray in your name. Amen.